morning. Stick out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. We at First Baptist Church have been working our way through the book of 2 Samuel, and today we pick it right up in the middle of this chapters-long drama happening in David's family that's about to turn the whole nation on its head. Let me remind you of the backstory real quick. All of this really starts with David's sin, uh, his adultery, his murder, uh, God's promise that as a result of that sin, the sword shall never depart from your house. Now that prophecy begins to be fulfilled and things begin to unravel when Amnon, one of David's sons, uh, violates his half-sister Tamar. Then Absalom, another of David's sons, seeing that his father David isn't going to do anything about that egregious and outrageous act committed against his sister, well, Absalom takes vengeance into his own hands and murders Amnon. That then leads to Absalom fleeing, fleeing Israel, taking refuge in the foreign land of Geshur. But then last week, chapter 14, we saw how Joab... David's military commander, how Joab basically tricks David into pardoning Absalom and bringing him back. And while that chapter ends on what might at first glance appear to be a high note, well, like we saw last week, things aren't always as they appear. Just because it looks like sugar, that doesn't mean it's not MSG that you're pouring into your coffee And just because it looks like true reconciliation, that doesn't mean there's not some serious hostility and tension still in the relationship. Sure, Absalom might have bowed before his father. Sure, David might have kissed his son. But there's no humility, no contrition, no repentance, no forgiveness, and none of the underlying issues are addressed. This is not genuine reconciliation at all. And if you have any reason to doubt that that's the case, well, by the time we're through chapter 15, I think you'll be in full agreement. And so 2 Samuel chapter 15, let's start our time by just reading the chapter in its entirety. I remind you that this right here is the best part of the sermon, when we hear directly from the God-breathed, Spirit-inspired Word of God. And so uh, listen carefully. This is the word that God has for you this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you from? And when he said, Your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judging the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole 
the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, the Lord will, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house, and all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, Wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. All the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons. Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David... Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. 
while David was coming, into, coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Second Samuel 15, you probably just noticed it from our initial reading. Uh, there is a lot going on there. So we're actually going to take two weeks to get through this chapter. Uh, today, this morning, I want us to think through some of the many characters who appear in this chapter and specifically how they relate to King David. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at David's response to all this. How does the man after God's own heart respond to this incredible adversity? But for this morning, let's think about four other uh, non-David characters in 2 Samuel 15, uh, two of whom rebel against him and two of whom align themselves with David in exile. Uh, Two of whom commit some of the worst treachery imaginable, and two of whom show some of the greatest loyalty. We've got two enemies and two friends. And so let's start with enemy number one. Uh, He is no stranger to us, and we've already talked about him at length. But here he is again, Absalom. Absalom who, now that Amnon, the firstborn son of David, is dead, and remember, we never hear anything about the secondborn son. He's presumably dead also. And so Absalom is the presumptive heir. He is the oldest remaining son of King David. And I remind you of how Absalom was described last week. Remember chapter 14, verse 25? How in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom? From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And how that description was stunningly similar to how King Saul was once described. Drawing our attention to the fact that Absalom would be like a second Saul, all about outward appearance, charisma, image, all style, but no substance. And we see evidence of that right from the get-go here in chapter 15. Look at verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, I have strong personal opinions about chariots and horses. Like, I'm just trying to enjoy a nice walk through Central Park without having to, you know, it's like, like dodging landmines. Putting my personal opinions aside, consider that in the Old Testament, chariots are almost always presented negatively. Like that's the vehicle of choice for Israel's enemies. 
and even horses. Horses are also often presented negatively. Remember that one of the rules for the kings of Israel was that he was not to acquire many horses for himself. And so the scriptures present uh, trusting in chariots and horses, where some people are going to do that. That's contradictory to trusting in the name of the Lord our God. For Absalom, I forget what the Bible says. This is all about showing off. Right? Do it for the gram. This is meant to be an impressive procession right? in all the eyes of the people, turning heads. But it's also more than just a flashy choice in transportation. This right here, verse 1, marks the beginning of his rebellion against his father. Because by riding in a chariot, by being pulled by horses, with men running before him, Absalom is presenting himself as a king. He wants everybody to see him as a kingly figure, one to rival his father. As a matter of fact, years later, when Absalom's long dead, and another son of David, Adonijah, Adonijah tries to claim his father's throne, do you remember what he does to signal to the public that he is now declaring himself king? 1 Kings chapter 1. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. Okay, so Adonijah, what are you going to do? And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. It's like chariots, horses, 50 men to run before. Like, where'd you get that idea? But this is exactly what Samuel once warned them about, isn't it? Many decades before, remember 1 Samuel chapter 8? The people of Israel, they're demanding a king. They just want to be like the other nations. And so Samuel warns them of what the kings of the nations are like. 1 Samuel 8, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king for him, or from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And so Absalom then, he's not just declaring himself to be king, he's also demonstrating that he is a king of the nations. And going back to what ultimately happened in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that's what most of the Israelites have wanted all along. Enemy number one, is Absalom. We're not done yet because there's more to his rebellion and his sedition than just his unique means of transportation. No, he's got this brilliant scheme. Look at verses two through six. Basically, he would wait by the city gates early in the morning. He would intercept those who were coming to King David for judgment on their cases. Because you see, back then, if you were an Israelite and your case was not rightly resolved at the lower levels, well, you could come and you could appeal to the king for justice. But Absalom would stop these people and he would sweet-talk them. And look at verse 3. Now, see, your claims are good and right. And just like that. Right? The, the person desperately seeking justice would feel like, wow, Absalom, he, he gets me. 
Absalom cares about me. He, he listens. But, and here's the true wickedness of Absalom's plan. There is no man designated by the king to hear you. Oh, friend, you have a good case. You have a really good case, but it's just too bad. Too bad, because it's never going to get heard by the king. In Proverbs chapter 6, we're told of six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Uh, Here's the list. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Uh, Interestingly enough, if you look at that list, you think about it, Absalom is seven for seven. But here in particular, our attention is drawn to the last two. First, he is a false witness who breathes out lies. Like, it's simply not true that there is no man designated by the king to hear you. How do we know that? Well, remember the previous chapter, chapter 14, the woman of Tekoa. She is a nobody widow with no social standing, and she's got a made-up case. And even she gets a hearing one-on-one with the king. What do you mean? There's no man designated by the king to hear you. But second, he is also one who sows discord among brothers. In this case, the brothers of an entire nation. Like, that's why he's doing this. He's trying to undermine, usurp his father's authority. He's trying to spread dissatisfaction and and, and dissension within the current regime. You see that clearly in verse 4. Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Implying two things. Number one, David is doing a really horrible job as king. But also number two, I would be so much better. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so, verse 6, we're not surprised to read that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is terrible. This is an abomination to God. But it's also an absolutely brilliant scheme because Absalom knows that the people love him for the same reason that their grandfathers once loved King Saul because he just looks like a king and Absalom knows that if he openly campaigns against his father well one way or another it's going to get shut down but if he does it like this not very subtly kind of under the radar, and never openly campaigning against David, but quietly subverting his authority and kind of sneakily impugning his reputation while exalting his own. Like, he can begin to plant the seeds of rebellion that would one day mature into an all-out coup. So just like Absalom once patiently waited, right, two full years for just the right moment to kill his brother Amnon, So now he patiently waits four full years for just the right moment 
to overthrow his father. When that day finally comes, well, look at what he does. He goes to his father. Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. But we're used to this by now. Here's your MSG in the sugar jar once again. This is not what it appears to be. Like, I think we've come to know Absalom's character well enough over the last two chapters to immediately suspect that something is rotten in Hebron. Now, this trip is not about going home to worship. Because you see, Hebron's not just Absalom's birthplace. It's also where David was once declared king. But David, see, he's got no idea. And so in a little twist of irony, look at his last words to his son who's about to declare war on him. He tells him, go in peace. So Absalom goes to Hebron and just like we suspected, he is up to no good. Gets that Edwin Diaz entrance music going. Five of you who get that reference, right? As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say Absalom is king at Hebron. Well, he has essentially declared war on his father. But here's again the brilliance of Absalom. He's no dummy. Verse 11, he brings with him 200 men from Jerusalem as invited guests. Presumably really important people, like a who's who of the king's court. He invites them with him. They go in their innocence. They know nothing. But to the outside eyes who are seeing all this happen, wow, Absalom just declared himself king and 200 of David's top officials are endorsing him. This is brilliant, but once again, things are not always as they seem. But combine that appearance of endorsement with the years of discontent that he's diligently sowed and combine that with the fact that he just looks like a king. And it's no surprise that the bandwagon gets full really quickly. Verse 12, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And so David, King David, is forced to flee Jerusalem and go into exile. Enemy number one is Absalom. The mutinous, the seditious rebel who is wildly successful in sowing discord among the people. But you see, I want you to notice this. That sin, sowing discord, uh, it's hardly unique to Absalom in the scriptures. It's basically what the serpent did in the garden. Come on, Eve. Did, did God actually say, no, you really believe you're, you will not surely die. He's lying to you. He doesn't want what's good for you. And it's the same sin that centuries and centuries later, uh, the false teachers at Corinth were doing the same thing, sowing discord in the church. The apostle Paul, come on, you don't want to follow him. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. It's all over the scriptures and friends, the sheer prevalence of this particular brand of sin in the scriptures that ought to warn us of how easily susceptible our own sinful hearts can be. 
You know what I'm talking about. The kind of passing derogatory comments about that sister that are intended to smear her reputation. That's sowing discord. Or participating in gossip about that brother that only serves to tear down. Again, that's Absalom's sin. About those seemingly innocent complaints about this or that, whether it's at your job or in your family or in your church. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, but if I were in charge, then fill in the blank. Enemy number one is Absalom. But let's not forget the worst part of this enemy. It's not how sneaky he is. It's not how patiently he waits for his opportunity. Really, it has nothing to do with his methods at all. The worst part, at least for David, is that this is his own son. His beloved son, Absalom, has now become his greatest enemy. This is not Goliath, the feared Philistine warrior. This is not the Ammonites. This is not the Syrians. This is not the Edomites, their mighty armies. No, this is the little boy that he used to take to the park to play catch. Surely there's few things that could be more painful for a man to endure than to be betrayed by his very own son. Enemy number one, Absalom. But this chapter isn't only about enemies, and we can thank God for that. Let's look now at friend number one. Friend number one is Ittai, the Gittite. So as David and those who are fleeing with him, as they're leaving Jerusalem, David notices one man in particular passing before him, and it's this man, Ittai the Gittite. And the fact that he's called the Gittite not only makes his full name sound really cool, but it also tells us that he's originally from Gath. He is a Philistine by birth, but that's basically all we know about him. But it says, Ittai passes before him. They're heading out of Jerusalem. David gives him an out. Listen, Ittai, you don't have to come with us. You're new here. Uh, You came only yesterday, and I think we're supposed to understand that figuratively, but you get the point. He hasn't been with David for a really long time. David's now heading into exile to I know not where. Like, he's going to be a sojourner. Like, I totally get it if you want to go back. And so this is, in essence, the test of Ittai's loyalty. Is this guy really with me? Or is he just leaving Jerusalem because he feels like he has to? And so David gives him an out. And look carefully at what David, King David, I'll remind you, what David says to Ittai in verse 19. He says, go back and stay with the king. Referring not to himself, but to self-proclaimed King Absalom. Basically, if you think Absalom is the real king, you can go back. You can serve him. I won't be mad. But then in words that strikingly resemble those of David's own great-grandmother, look at Ittai's response. 
As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. You see, Ruth's words, Ruth, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Well, her words are better known, but Ittai's words here are no less loyal. And as proof, he takes his whole family with him, and they follow David into exile. Surely going back to Absalom would have been more pragmatic and practical in many ways. But Ittai, he is no opportunist. He's as loyal as they come. So he casts his lot with the exiles. He heads out with David into the wilderness. Friend number one is Ittai. What a friend indeed. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and for David, it's Ittai, the Gittite. Remember, David's coming off what might just be the most painful kind of betrayal possible, like his very own son has just become his enemy, stabbed him in the back, and so we can only imagine how refreshing it would have been for David. Like, as he's fleeing from the treachery of his new enemy, to see here the loyalty of his new friend. Friend number one is Ittai. So for enemy number one, Absalom. Friend number one, Ittai. That brings us now to enemy number two. His name is Ahithophel. Now technically we're going a little bit out of order here because we actually met him back in verse 12. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And so we learned there that Ahithophel was David's counselor. He was a, he was a trusted, intimate friend, uh, one who would give wisdom on anything and everything. Now let's cheat a bit. Let's look ahead to the next chapter, chapter 16. Because look at what it says there about the kind of counselor that Ahithophel was. 2 Samuel 16, 23 now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. This guy sounds like exactly the kind of counselor you want to be your friend. Now, while it's somewhat unclear at the beginning of the chapter where his allegiances lie, well, by the end of the chapter, we're left with no doubt, because look at verse 31. It was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And so Ahithophel, once trusted by David, one of David's inner circle as one of his most esteemed counselors, once his close friend, well, Ahithophel has now made himself David's enemy. And so many Bible scholars think that David's referring to Ahithophel in Psalm 41. When he writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. First Absalom, right? Now Ahithophel, or when it rains, it pours. 
Maybe it doesn't hurt as bad as having your own son betray you, but having a close friend like that in whom you trusted betray you, well, that's not all that much better. Enemy number two is Ahithophel. Here's the thing about Ahithophel's betrayal. You see, it's a little more complicated than Ahithophel just deciding to jump on the Absalom bandwagon, like just trying to secure himself a place in the new regime. No, it's also very personal for Ahithophel the Gilanite. Because although this is the first time that we're meeting Ahithophel here in chapter 15, it's not the first time we're meeting his family because you see, Ahithophel the Gilanite had a son, and 2 Samuel 23, 34 tells us the name of this son was Eliam, the son of Ahithophel the Gilanite. And Eliam, the son of Ahithophel the Gilanite, well, he had a daughter, a young woman that we're actually quite familiar with. 2 Samuel eleven three. David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam? Yeah, that's right. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And so it wasn't just anybody's granddaughter that David took for himself. It wasn't just anybody's grandson-in-law that David killed. It was that of his trusted counselor, his close friend. And so in that sense, well, yes, this is another treacherous betrayal of David where a friend tragically becomes an enemy overnight, but it's also very much David reaping what he sowed. Just a natural consequence of his sin. The chickens are coming home to roost. And as a, resu and as a result... David loses not only a close friend, but he also loses an esteemed counselor. Enemy number two is Ahithophel. Enemy number one, Absalom. Friend number one, Atai the Gittite. Enemy number two, Ahithophel. Uh, quite frankly, right, you got Absalom, uh, his charisma. You got Ahithophel, his, his brains. Uh, we wouldn't blame David for thinking, wow, my enemies not only outnumber, but... Also overpower my friends. And so when, in what seems like a hopeless situation, all David can do when he hears about Ahithophel's defection is just mutter this short prayer. Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And we're going to see how God answers that prayer in the chapters to come. But his most immediate answer to that prayer, the counter to enemy number two, Ahithophel? Well, it's friend number two, Hushai the Archite. Verse 32, Behold, Hushai the Archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. It's just when great counselor, a wise advisor, betrays him as an enemy. Well, wouldn't you know it? God sends a great counselor and a wise advisor to now be his friend. Hushai is an answer to prayer. And Hushai is an answer to prayer through whom God opens David's eyes 
to show him what he would later show to Elisha and his servant, that those who are with us are much more than those who are with them. Now, Hushai is going to play a vital role in the chapters to come. He essentially goes undercover like, like black ops here, and he infiltrates as a mole Absalom's close circle, and he sabotages Ahithophel's council. We're going to get to that, though, when we get to that. For now, I just want you to consider once again the grace, the kindness of God to his child, David. Absalom makes himself an enemy. God sends Ittai the Gittite. Ahithophel makes himself an enemy. God sends Hushai the Archite. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Hushai was born for such a time as this. Friend number two, Hushai the Archite. So friends, that's 2 Samuel chapter 15. It is a chapter about enemies and a chapter about friends. Enemy number one, you've got Absalom, the, the sower of discord. Friend number one, you've got Ittai the Gittite, the picture of loyalty. Enemy number two, you've got Ahithophel, the vengeful grandfather. And friend number two, Hushai the Archite, the answer to prayer. Well, let me leave you now with three quick takeaways from this chapter. Uh, three ways in which we can apply elements of this story uh, to our lives. Takeaway number one is to be thankful to God for loyal friends. Be thankful to God for loyal friends. There's a lot from the Bible that we can say about friends. We can talk about the Proverbs on the friends. We can talk about examples of friendship, like David and Jonathan. But here's what really stands out in this chapter, is that loyal friends are a gift from God. Loyal friends are a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, and loyal friends are certainly no exception. Because it's exactly when David would be most prone to discouragement in this chapter, that twice, Twice in God's perfect providence and timing, he sends David loyal friends. David is fleeing from his rebellious son, Absalom. That's when God sends him Ittai the Gittite. And it's as David learns about the defection, the defection of his treacherous son, Ahithophel, treacherous friend, Ahithophel, that's when God sends him Hushai the Archite. Like, did you notice that both of these guys basically come out of nowhere? Ittai, like David even says to him, you just showed up yesterday. I don't know you. Where'd you come from? But Ittai, the Gittite, is a loyal friend. And Hushai, like, where'd this guy come from? He just happens to be walking around on the Mount of Olives and just happens to run into David at exactly that time? It couldn't be more clear. God, in his sovereign providence, sent those two loyal friends to David. Takeaway number one, be thankful to God for loyal friends. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you've seen a, a similar kindness work out in your own life. Maybe there was a particularly discouraging season of your walk. 
one in which you were very low and weak. But God sent you a good, faithful, loyal friend who helped you to get through that. Like even though they came only yesterday, God sent you and Itai the Gittite to walk together with you through that season. Or maybe it was precisely as you were experiencing betrayal from a once close friend that God answered your prayer for healing by sending you Ahushai the Archite. Or maybe it's a different situation altogether. But God's good providence in sending you that friend that loves at all times, who sticks closer than a brother, well, it's still undeniably clear. Whatever it is, takeaway number one, we ought to be thankful to God for loyal friends. Takeaway number two, don't put your ultimate trust in loyal friends. Now, this takeaway is not in contradiction to the first. Uh, Rather, it helps us to frame the first rightly, view the first rightly, because it reminds us that even the closest and most loyal of friends are still fallen people. Sinners who are, apart from the grace of God, still very capable of all kinds of treachery and disloyalty. Because here's the thing. If you had asked David back in, I don't know, 2 Samuel chapter 9 or something like that, if you told him then that he ought to be thankful to God for loyal friends, he probably is not going too far down the list before he gives thanks for Ahithophel. Thank you, God, for giving me a friend like Ahithophel, my dear friend, an awesome counselor. Oh, the wisdom that he gives, it's so good. It's like hearing from you. Thank you, Lord, for Ahithophel, my friend. So we're reminded, once again, Psalm 146, to put not our trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And so, yes, we ought to be thankful to God for loyal friends. We ought to love our loyal friends. We ought to be loyal to our loyal friends. But takeaway number two, we ought not to put our ultimate trust in them, uh, not only for our own safety, but also because that's a load that no man or woman can possibly bear. Takeaway number two, don't put your ultimate trust in loyal friends. But instead, takeaway number three, put your ultimate trust in Christ. Put your ultimate trust in Christ. Oh, whereas no human being, and no ordinary son of man could ever stand beneath the weight of your ultimate trust, well, there is one who can. His name is Jesus. And we see him all over this text. You say, where? Well, the real estate folks would tell you, location, location, location. Location. David leaves Jerusalem. Location. David crosses over 
verse 23, the brook Kidron, and location David goes to, verse 30, the Mount of Olives, weeping as he goes. You're already familiar with those locations because years later, many years later, the son of David would trace those exact same steps. John 18, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. He crosses the brook Kidron, and at the base of the Mount of Olives, he finds the garden of Gethsemane, where he too would weep. He too would weep because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, even as David was in this chapter. And he too was betrayed by someone in his closest inner circle. You see, if Psalm 41.9 is about Ahithophel, like I posited earlier, well, Jesus sees that connection between him and David. That connection between Ahithophel and Judas, because this is what he says in John 13 about Judas, but the scripture will be fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's Psalm 141.9. So there's many similarities between David and the son of David. Betrayed by a close friend, leaving Jerusalem, crossing the brook Kidron, weeping at the Mount of Olives. But of course, there's one huge difference. David was a sinner. As a matter of fact, all of what happens to him in this chapter, it's just a fulfillment of the consequences that God had once promised that therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. But Jesus, the son of David, well, Jesus never sinned. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And so the sorrow and the, the agony and the suffering that he would endure leaving Jerusalem, crossing the brook Kidron at the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane, and of course the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion that was to follow. Well, all of that was not for his own sins, but for those of sinners like us. That he might take upon himself the judgment, the wrath of God, that we deserve for our sins, so that he might make sinners like us righteous. So that if we would trust in him, we repent and turn from our sin and trust him and him alone for our salvation that we too might be saved. So takeaway number one, be thankful to God for loyal friends. But takeaway number two, don't put your ultimate trust in loyal friends. But takeaway number three, there is a friend in whom we can put our ultimate trust, a friend of sinners, one who stands to save you today. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear.
Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for how this chapter so clearly points us to him. Father, we pray that we would find him to be a friend of sinners and that we would place our full trust in him and him alone. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.